Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11 as we continue in our series in Exodus Free at Last. This morning, I'm going to talk a few moments about the great reversal, the great reversal. Listen to the Word of God from Exodus 11, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go, people of Israel go out of his land. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray. As each of us now sits under the authority of your Word, we pray that you would do that work in us and among us, by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, transform us, conform us into the image of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I love great reversal stories. I love great reversal stories. You know the stories I'm talking about, right? The stories where the downtrodden, the down and out, the oppressed, the materially bankrupt, the unjustly imprisoned, the mistreated, the abused, or the like, have their circumstances completely reversed, such that they are lifted up from the depths of the evil done to them and given new life, new fortune. Fictional stories like uh, Alexander Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo, come to mind. Or better yet, all the real-life stories, all the real-life stories of enslaved people gaining their freedom Become, becoming key figures in the deliverance of others, such as Frederick Douglass and others. I love uh, great reversal stories, and I love them because as a Christian, I, I realize that, that all of us who hope in Jesus should realize that we are part of the greatest reversal story ever told. We are those who are not uh, simply part of a story, not simply a part of a story of people who were down and out, but, but we're a part of a story, according to the Scriptures, uh, of people who were dead, who were dead. And I mean, don't, 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 
don't, it don't get more down and out. <laughs> it don't get more down and out than that. We, according to God's story, we were spiritually dead. We were in a state from which the only hope of return was an act of God on our behalf. And that is exactly what we received. God acted in Jesus to raise dead people to new life through faith in Him. Our, our rebellion against God caused us to be dead in our relationship to Him, dead in our relationship with ourselves, dead in our relationship with other people, dead in our relationship with the very creation itself. But thanks be to God that He is a God of resurrection. Thanks be to God that He is a God who can reach into the grave and cause the dead to rise. A God who can take scattered dry bones and reconnect them. A God who can put flesh on those dry bones and a God who can breathe into that restored humanity and make it live again. The Exodus story, the Exodus story, brothers and sisters, is a story of a great reversal, one that, that previewed the great reversal of which I have been speaking. God had one more plague to send upon Egypt, and afterwards He would reverse what Egypt had done to His people, setting them free from Egyptian slavery into the, and into freedom, the freedom of service to Him. And mark my wording, for, for our, our freedom is a freedom back into our created privilege, privilege to worship the Lord in this world as His image bearers. The great reversal, the great reversal then might be also tagged a great restoration, a great restoration. The point is this, that Moses and Israel were about to experience a deliverance that would come, uh, that would become the paradigm for the great deliverance that was coming through Jesus. Everything that God had done was all leading up to this moment, a moment that would break the power of Egypt, a show, uh, a moment that would show the power of God's salvation in this world. And that's what I want to impress upon us this morning, people of God. This great reversal is God's work. This great reversal is God's work. Listen again to verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This, reverse, this verse reminds us that everything that has happened up to this point has happened according to God's plan. God is the one guiding the process from beginning to end. The plagues have been, uh, been His doing and have unfolded as He determined they would. And now, the great act of deliverance that He had promised would be accomplished, as He said. And there would be nothing Pharaoh, nothing His officials, nothing His people could do about it. Don't miss this. The I in that verse uh, the I says, I will bring, I will bring about this great reversal. And you need to hear this this morning because this ain't, this ain't bootstrap reversal of fortune that, 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 that all of us as human, belie- human beings want to believe in. We love those stories. We love the stories where we pull ourselves up, where we save ourselves, where we deliver ourselves from some calamity. No, this story of redemption that takes place, takes place because someone outside of us, someone outside of us secures our freedom. Israel was doomed without God's help. 
and we were and are doomed without God's help. We are citizens, brothers and sisters, of the kingdom of God because God in His salvation causes a great reversal of the circumstances of the lives of His people. So, what I want to talk about this morning is the elements of that, that great reversal. What are those elements? Well, first of all, brothers and sisters, God's great reversal addresses our material needs. Listen again to verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. I said in the last sermon uh, that slavery is an ugly thing. In addition to the violence that people suffer, uh, sexual, physical, emotional violence that people suffer, there's also a recurring theft of the fruit of their labors. And slavers and empires have become rich historically through the theft of the labor of the enslaved. This, in my mind, is not even a debatable point. Any honest assessment of cultures where slavery has been prevalent would reveal this to be the case and would show the impact of that stolen labor, not just on the immediate generation that had its labor stolen, but the ripple effects on subsequent generations in every, uh, uh, in every area where one's material well-being is concerned. And this truth raises a question that is answered in this text. Does God care about the stolen labor, labor of enslaved people? Did, did the 400 years of His people's stolen labor matter to Him? And more generally, is the Lord in His salvific purposes even concerned with the material well-being of those He comes to rescue? I, I want to remind us of what God said to Moses when, when this whole process of deliverance began. He told Moses in chapter 3, verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will do in it, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's, that's right. That's right. In, in God's economy, the plundered become plunderers. And, and, and so you don't mishear me. Note that there's no violence here. There, there's no repaying evil for evil here. There is no theft here. God promises instead that His judgments will produce favor among the Egyptians such that Israel will only have to ask their Egyptian neighbors for their silver and gold, and it will be given to them. And what God shows us here is that, is that His great reversal includes a great repair. In other words, God works to repair the well-being of His people, a well-being stolen from them by their oppressors. This is why Israel in this story is not just going to plunder the Egyptians receiving their silver and gold, which they have gained through Israel's exploitation, but, it's, but, but, but is also going to be set in a land flowing with milk and honey, 
that, that is a land filled with everything Israel will need for her well-being. God in this way is driving home the point that, that the material well-being of those he has come to rescue matters. And what, and what makes the church, brothers and sisters, such a powerful community when it functions as it should is that it, through its lavish generosity toward the oppressed and the poor and the widow and the orphan inside and outside of its ranks shows the world how it should treat those who have been exploited or otherwise deprived of this world's goods. In First John, we read this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word only, or, or word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The, the unfortunate historical reality is that too often we have been found complicit in the theft rather than making every effort to discourage it. The point, though, is that God cares, matters to God. The material well-being of His people matters to God in this life and in the life to come. God cares about the oppressed, and He cares about their stolen labor, and He has promised that part of His deliverance is a great repair. Amen, people of God. The call here, uh, the call here, because Israel, is, the call here is this, because Israel knew what it was like to have her labor stolen from her, to have her material well-being discarded. She was going to be called by God to take great care not to do the same to others. Because you have experienced what it's like to have your labor stolen, you are not to steal the labor of others passages like Deuteronomy 24 come to mind. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and count on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be found guilty of sin. Deuteronomy 15 comes to mind. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, you shall be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide to your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. As Christians… As Christians, the generosity that was forced upon the Egyptians should be the normal practice among us. 
as the people of God. When people look at how we treat those who work for us, they should see great care, the great care we take to do good to those in our employ. And they should see among us an overall commitment to be generous to one another, caring for one another's needs. When the world hears us talk about money or material things or sees how we handle it individually and corporately, they should not hear or see greed and covetousness. Rather, they should see lavish generosity. God's great reversal, (laughs) God's great reversal addresses our material needs. But God's great reversal also establishes our faith in Him as judge. Listen again to verses 4 to 7. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. And all the firstborn of the cattle, there should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. The story confronts us with questions about fairness and justice and compassion and the like. And engaging all those questions would take more than the time I have in this point. But what I want to do this morning by way of entering into some of these questions that are, that are inevitably in our minds when we read a story like this is to dig into the answer that God Himself gives in the text. For God, in fact, gives an answer in the text as to why He is bringing this judgment on Egypt. In verse 7, He says to Pharaoh through Moses that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, God says that what he is about to do through the death of all of Egypt's firstborn and the protection of all of Israel's will further demonstrate the distinction between the two. Now, we know from God's character as well as God's plan revealed in the Scriptures to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his descendants that this distinction is not ethnic and it's not national. It is rather a distinction, as I have said, that finds its roots in covenant and God's sovereign initiative to establish with Israel a relationship in which He would bless them and through them all the nations of the earth. It's a covenant fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus through whom we receive those blessings promised to Abraham through faith. Yet this story unveils another depth of the distinction for which we have uh, faith, in, for, for those of us who have faith in God, it reveals another depth of the distinction in which we should rejoice. Up to this point, there's been a pattern as it pertains to Pharaoh. God announces a plague, performs a plague without announcement. Pharaoh, despite some variation in his initial reaction, ultimately hardens his heart <clears throat> or has his heart hardened by God as a judgment. And the Bible, of course, holds these these two truths together. On the one hand, the hardening is a demonstration of God's control uh, over everything, including the human will, a point that most certainly needed to be made given the belief that Pharaoh held uh, and that was held about him of his own control and authority over everything. At the same time, Pharaoh's hardening is a result of his own sinful inclination to disobey God, to rebel against God's authority and control. The confession says it this way. 
As for those wicked and ungodly people whom God binds and hardens as a righteous judge for their former sins, he not only withholds from them his grace by which they might have been enlightened in their understandings and worked upon in their hearts, but also sometimes withdraws the gifts they had and exposes them to such objects as as their own corruption makes occasion of sin. In addition, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, the power of Satan, by which it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even by those means which God uses for the softening of others. Why do I press this point here? Pharaoh, as king, had a responsibility to his people to ensure their overall well-being. And this is clearly shown to be the expectation when his own advisors, speaking to him in verse 7 of chapter 10, say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve their Lord. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? They expected Pharaoh to do what was in the best interest of the land, what was in the best interest of Egypt's well-being. And Pharaoh, in his state of being hardened, had refused to fulfill this duty. But surely now that he was faced with this threat, a threat that not only would be faced by his people, but his own household as well, surely he would relent. What is more important normally to human beings and the well-being of their children? Most of us would do whatever we could to protect the lives of our children. There's no way, right, that Pharaoh will allow this judgment to come upon his land. Again, don't read the hardening in verse 10 as if Pharaoh's own will is not involved here. It is. Thus, even in the face of this judgment, Pharaoh refuses to obey. His commitment to his sin and to the empire he has built upon that sin is so deep that not even the lives of his own children are important. And if that doesn't tell us how sinful sin is, I don't know what will. Yet in contrast to Pharaoh's attitude, we are meant to see God's attitude toward His covenant people. It is a concern that is so deep that God will not even allow a dog to stick out its tongue at His people in a threatening manner. And the point isn't that God's people aren't going to face death or they aren't going to die. The point is that their lives matter deeply to Him. Their their deaths, as we learn later in the Scriptures, are precious in His sight. And according to our Lord, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And that love and care is a message not only to Christians, but to the world that there is a God who, unlike the empire in this story, and unlike the king in this story, throughout history or empires in the present, there is a God who cares about human life. And so while I can't answer all the questions about the mind of God and the executions of His judgments in the earth, including the one right in front of us, I can know with certainty, and so can you, that our God is not capricious, that He's not vindictive, that He's not oppressive, that He's not unjust, 
Rather, he is the God who knows the number of hairs on the heads of all of his people. And the call here, brothers and sisters, is to trust God's justice overall, to trust that God in his infinite wisdom knows how, to, how best to bring about that justice. It's to know that God in working that justice is not vindictive or capricious, capricious or vindictive. It is to trust him as the God who cares deeply about his world and about the human beings he has set in it. And as Christians, it's to know his special care for us. It's to know that our lives matter to him, that God is not unconcerned with our plight in this world, that God sees everything that happens to us, that his salvation is a promise to walk with us in all that happens to us, to to comfort us, to heal us, to guide us, to protect us. It is this care that is behind passages like Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will keep you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or that spoken to Moses, that passage spoken to Moses at the onset of his deliverance in chapter 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This, brothers and sisters, is the distinction. It is the special care of God for his people And the call is to trust that care, to trust that it's toward you in every arena of your life, your family, your work, your neighborhood, and your trials, and your griefs, and your sorrows. In every arena of life, God has promised to care for us as those who are His. Trust that. Believe that. Because it's true. God's great reversal lastly brings with it our vindication. Look again at verses 3 and then 8 through 9. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Then verse 8, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. What God does here and what Moses prophesies will happen is nothing short of the vindication of his people in the eyes of their oppressors. Through his wonders, God had changed Egypt's disposition toward Moses and Israel. Even if they weren't ready to acknowledge Israel's God as God, they could, de- they could not deny what God had done in Egypt. And this led to Moses, who began this journey as despised and small in the eyes of Egypt and her leaders, being considered by all except Pharaoh as very great in the land. Indeed, what God had done would lead to a great reversal that Pharaoh most certainly would not be prepared for. For for Moses prophesied that when God is done, Pharaoh's administrators as well as his people will bow down to Moses, insisting upon their deliverance from Egypt. And they, 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 they would beg Israel, essentially, to leave 
so that God would bring no more death upon them. And I use the word vindication here because God's salvation is a demonstration to all that God will deliver on what He promises to all who trust in Him. Those who hope in God, in other words, brothers and sisters, will not be put to shame. No, the shame will come to those who stand in the way of God's salvific purposes. Trust me, it would be a profound humiliation for Pharaoh to see his administration bowing down to Moses, for it would signal that God had won and that Moses was in the right to trust in God's promises. I don't know about you, but when I look down the corridors of history and I see the sin that has crushed so many lives, I am grateful for a God who vindicates. I am so grateful for a God who doesn't let sin or death or evil bask in the glory of its victory over people's lives forever. I am so grateful for what David found out and declared to us all in Psalm 37. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And Isaiah speaks of the heritage of God's people in this way in Isaiah 54. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. We have hope today because of God, because we too will be vindicated, not even death will be able to gloat over us, for we are those who have been bound to Jesus Christ, of whom it was declared that He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And pay attention to the text, for this is not Moses' doing, not Moses' doing, but the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's wonders multiplied throughout Egypt that will bring this prophecy of the Egyptians bowing down to Him and asking Him and Israel to leave to fruition. Moses' toughness is not what's on display here. Even his hot anger with, with, with which he turns and leaves Pharaoh's presence will not be the cause of the vindication. Rather, God will vindicate him through his acts of salvation on behalf of his people. Aren't you glad this morning that you don't have to have your own back? Aren't you glad that you can stand for God and for the establishment of His kingdom and know that whatever your enemies do, they will not be able to stand in the way of what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you? You don't have to repay evil for evil. The Lord will vindicate you. And this doesn't always mean in this life that your enemies will affirm that vindication. Once God frees Israel, Pharaoh will chase after him with intentions to enslave him again, enslave the people of Israel again. Those of you who have dealt with enemies like this, you know what I'm talking about. But our vindication isn't ultimately based on what our enemies say or on what they try to do. Instead, it's based on God's power to set us free and to make His judgments concerning us stand. The day is coming, of course, where we will share in the victory of our Lord, finally over all the enemies of this life. To this end, when we find ourselves in unjust circumstances, we can pray like the psalmist in Psalm 17, 
Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. And you can pray that way because of what the psalmist says later in that same song. I call upon you, for you will answer me. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I call upon you, for you will answer me. Oh God, incline your ear to me and hear my words. The Lord is not unconcerned with the injustices we face, and He is not unconcerned with our individual situations nor our corporate situations. Many of the slaves in our own country prayed like that psalmist did. And you know what? The Lord heard them. The Lord heard them, and He will hear you too. So don't grow weary in taking your calls to God. Part of the great reversal is also a great vindication. Amen, people of God. Amen. Amen. The great reversal, God shows His concern for our material well-being. He establishes our faith in Him as the judge. And that great reversal also includes His promise to vindicate us together with His Son. Amen, people of God. Is that good news? Then you ought to give God some praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. Who is like you in heaven or on earth? There is no one. There is no one. So we worship you today. We praise you, God, the God of the great reversal, the God who has set us free from all of our enemies, and the God who promises that the day is coming where we will be fully set free from them in the life to come. So we give you praise. We worship you. We give you thanks. And as we live our lives in this world in anticipation of what's coming, help us to remember (coughs) that this is who you are. You are the God of deliverance. You are the God of freedom. You are the God of salvation. So help us as a community to walk in that freedom to practice that freedom in our lives together as your people. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.